He was one of those civilized individuals who did not insist upon agreement with his political principles as a precondition for conversation or friendship. People around here don't care about DACA. They don't care about Me Too, I'm Black Too, or transgender bathrooms. Period. A trade war with China? Bring it on! Most people in western Pennsylvania support it. They've been blaming the Chinese for stealing their jobs for 40 years. Democrats used to fight for this stuff. Long, long time ago, I can still remember how that music used to make me smile. I'm Mike Romai, taking you back to February 3rd, 1959. It's a day that is famous because of a tragedy. February 3rd, 1959 was the day Buddy Holly, J.P. Richardson, the Big Bopper, and Richie Valens perished in a plane crash. February made me shiver with every paper I deliver. Bad news on the doorstep I couldn't take one more step Many of us who weren't even alive in 1959 know of the date and the impact it had on rock and roll through a song that was released in 1972 by Don McLean called American Pie or many people refer to it as The Day the Music Died. Rich Everett is an author. He wrote a book called Falling Stars, Air Crashes That Filled Rock and Roll Heaven. And this is the story of just some of those rockers who perished in plane crashes over the years. Something touched me deep inside the day the music died. Hello, baby. Yeah, this is the Big Bopper speaking. And uh, we're joined by Rich Everett. Rich is the author of Falling Stars, Air Crashes That Filled Rock and Roll Heaven. And uh, on his website at uh, richeverett.com, it says it started February 3rd, 1959. What's considered the day the music died, Buddy Holly, the Big Bopper, and Richie Valens perished in a plane crash. That's exactly right. It was... uh it was sort of an ill-conceived tour that they were on, of a tour of the upper Midwest in the dead of winter, and they'd been out for about 12 days, and they'd been traveling on an old broken-down bus. In fact, a number of old broken-down buses. I think they went through about half a dozen buses in the first two weeks of the tour, and it was freezing cold, and the bus that they ultimately ended up on, the heater broke, and in fact, two days prior to the last concert, the bus had actually given up the ghost on the side of the highway, and it was so cold that while waiting for help to come get them, Carl Bunch, the drummer for Buddy Holly, actually got frostbite sitting there. They had to burn newspapers in the aisle of the bus to try to stay warm, and since he got frostbite, he didn't finish the tour and was, in fact, not at the anniversary concert uh, on February the 3rd, and Buddy Holly actually played drums for some of the other acts, and Richie Valens played drums for Buddy Holly. Uh, we're talking early days of rock and roll, uh, when uh, when rock stars didn't have the luxury of airplanes and air travel and agents and such. Buddy was making most of those plans on his own, wasn't he? That's exactly right. Back then, it was real, real popular to have a star package tour, where they'd have a number of stars 
uh, six, seven, eight stars on, on one show, and they would all travel around together in buses. And on this particular tour, they called it the Winter Dance Party Tour, it was Buddy Holly, Richie Valens, the Big Bopper, an unknown singer named Frank Sardo, and Dion of Dion, uh, Dion and the Belmonts. The Belmonts were there with the Dion as well. Yeah, now, uh, Rich Everett is our guest. He's a veteran journalist. He has this book. It's called Falling Stars, Air Crashes That Filled Rock and Roll Heaven. Now, when, how did you come up with uh, the concept of this book? Well, there was actually a specific moment that it occurred to me to write this book. I was flying over Texas one day in my, my small airplane when it occurred to me I was flying over the spot where Ricky Nelson had crashed back on New Year's Eve of 1985. And if you remember the cause of that crash, what was reported at the time, and I was a television news reporter back in those days, and I was one of the people that reported that crash, and what we were, we were all told in the early days of the crash, the first couple of days after Ricky Nelson's crash, was the investigators thought that possibly the plane crashed because Ricky Nelson and the Stone Canyon Band were cooking up drugs in the back of the plane using hairspray cans as blowtorches to cook up the drugs. And so as I flew along that day over Texas, I began thinking about this. And when I landed, I called a friend of mine at the National Transportation Safety Board and had him send me the final report on the, on the Ricky Nelson crash. I was just curious what they finally did decide. And when I got the report, I discovered that we had all reported it completely wrong. Mm -hmm. It had nothing to do with hairspray or drugs or anything. The reason the investigators were curious about that early on is they found an, an enormous number of hairspray cans in the wreckage, and they jumped to the wrong conclusion. didn't occur to them at the time that a band of long-haired musicians might have all that hairspray on board just for hairspray. So I started wondering, well, if the reports had been that wrong on the Ricky Nelson crash, what about the John Denver crash and the Otis Redding crash and Patsy Cline and Buddy Holly and Stevie Ray Vaughan and Leonard Skinner and all the others? And so I set out to try to set the record straight. And so I began doing some research and originally was going to write kind of a technical book for pilots about why these planes crashed. But, Mike, along the way, I began finding stories that nobody had ever heard before. The kind of stories that when you hear them just make you go, ooh, ooh really? Yeah. And, uh, and so that's what the book Falling Stars, Air Crashes to Field Rock and Roll Heaven, ultimately became a collection of the odd and unusual stories that surround all of these crashes. And i got to tell you, the Buddy Holly crash, uh, it's the one with the most stories. I actually begin and end the book with the Buddy Holly story. Right. This is one of the cases where the stories that are true uh, turn out to be even more interesting than some of the, the legendary stories that are not true. But there were a number of people who had the opportunity to be on that plane that particular night. Buddy Holly had chartered the plane for himself, for Tommy Alsop, his guitar player, and for Waylon Jennings, an unknown bass player from Lubbock, Texas, back in 1959, uh, who was Buddy Holly's bass player on that tour. Well, Buddy Holly chartered the plane, and Richie Valens went to Tommy Alsop, the guitar player, and began pestering him. Richie Valens had never even flown on a plane before, and he thought he should get Tommy Alsop's seat instead of Tommy Alsop having the, uh, the plane ride. So he pestered him all night, and finally Tommy Alsop, just more or less to get rid of him, said, all right, tell you what, I'll flip you for it. And Richie had a 50-cent piece and flipped it in the air. Richie called heads. Heads it was. Tommy Alsop is now off the plane. Richie Valens is on the plane. Well, having seen that that happened, the big bopper goes to Waylon Jennings. 
and gives him kind of a sob story, tells him that he's catching a cold and that he, the bus is cold and he can't sleep on it and he's afraid he's going to get sicker and sicker if he rides that bus and he's a big guy and he can't fit in the chairs on the bus and can he please have Waylon Jennings' seat on the plane, please, if you don't mind. And Waylon said without really giving it much thought, he just said, hey, it's okay with me. If you want my seat on the plane, you can have my seat on the plane. Later that night, after the concert, Waylon Jennings went to Buddy Holly backstage in the dressing room, brought him, brought him a Coca-Cola and a hot dog. He said Buddy was leaning in a cane-back chair against the back wall of the dressing room, and, he, and Buddy said to him, well, I hear you're not going to be flying with us tonight. Waylon said, no, I'm, I'm going to give my seat to, to the bopper. Buddy Holly said to Waylon Jennings, well, in that case, uh, I hope your old bus freezes up. And in response to that, the last words Waylon Jennings ever said to Buddy Holly, well, in that case, I hope your old plane crashes. He said it haunted him the rest of his life. Now, there's also a third person who could have been on that airplane, a story that not many people have ever heard. Before Buddy went to any of these people, his other band members, Waylon Jennings and Tommy Austin offered them a seat on the plane, he went to one of the other major stars that was on the tour and said, hey, look, you're, you're the other big star on the tour. You want to fly with us tonight instead of riding in the bus. And the other major stars said, well, how much is it going to cost me? And Buddy wanted him to split the, the rental fee, and it was going to be $36. Hmm. And he said, $36? My dad has to work a whole week up in Philadelphia as a laborer to make that much. I can't in good conscience pay that. Hmm. I'm not going to take the flight. And that's why Dion DiMucci is still alive today. What was the cause of the, of the crash? You know, unfortunately, it's one of the most common causes of airplane crashes, small airplane crashes, and it's the same reason that other rock and roll crashes have happened. It's the same reason Patsy Cline's crash happened. Very simply, it was a pilot who was not qualified to fly in what pilots call instrument conditions, basically bad weather a pilot not qualified to fly in the kind of weather he flew into on this particular charter flight they had hired a 21 year old pilot who was just starting out his flying career he was not qualified to fly his airplane by sole reference to the instruments in the instrument panel now normally when you fly there are two ways of doing it you can fly by looking out the window and just kind of seeing where you're going but if you're in conditions where you can't see out the window in snow or clouds or fog, then you have to be qualified to fly your airplane solely by reading the instruments on the instrument panel. And this particular pilot had actually flunked his instrument flight exam nine months earlier. And that night flew into the kind of conditions that would have required him to fly solely by reference to his instruments. And to make matters worse, the instrument training airplane that he had been used to taking his training in, even though he had flunked his test, had one type of instrument. The plane they flew that night had a different type, and the plane he was in the night that he went down with Buddy Holly, the instruments in that plane gave exactly the opposite readings from the plane he had been training in. So if he even tried to fly on his instruments, his instruments would have shown he would have thought he was going up, plane really would have been going down. If he thought he was going left, he really would have been going right had he tried to read those instruments. Wow. Incredible. We're talking with Rich Everett. He's the uh, author of Falling Stars, Air Crashes, The Field, Rock and Roll Heaven. Yes, I wanted to ask your guest 
they had a documentary on uh, John Denver. The way I understand it, he was an expert pilot. John yes, Denver. he was. He was a very highly qualified pilot. So highly qualified, in fact, that when they investigated his crash and saw how many fundamental mistakes he had made that led up to the crash, some of the investigators actually wanted to investigate his crash as a suicide because they could not believe that someone as highly qualified as John Denver would make that many fundamental mistakes in a row. Turns out there was no evidence that it was a suicide. He just had a bad day flying. He crashed into Monterey Bay out in California. He took off. He was flying an airplane he had very little experience in. He had only flown it for about an hour and a half, and it was an experimental airplane. And John Denver broke the cardinal rule of piloting. He literally quit flying his airplane. In flight training, from the very first day, they tell you no matter what else is happening, first fly the airplane. If the propeller falls off, fly the airplane first. If you give out of gas, first fly the airplane. And John Denver became distracted because he had run one of his fuel tanks dry, and he was having trouble with a fuel selector valve to switch over to the other tank. And he literally took his hand off the stick, turned around backwards in his seat to fiddle with a fuel valve selector, and in doing so, inadvertently pushed on his right rudder pedal, rolled the plane over inverted, and pointed it straight at Monterey Bay at over 200 miles an hour. He probably never even saw the water coming up at him. Oddly enough, the airplane he was flying uh, is a new, a very advanced airplane, and it's not made out of metal. It's made out of composite materials wrapped around foam. And it's one of the few airplanes that floats as well as it flies. And had he accepted the fact that he had run out of gas and simply ditched the airplane in the water, as all pilots are trained to do, he could have easily just popped the hatch and enjoyed the sunshine on his shoulders. They towed him back to shore. What year was the John uh, Denver John crash? Denver's crash was October the 12th, 1997. Nope. Excellent pilot. Was qualified to fly everything up to and including his own Lear jet, which he had flown just the day before. Morning trouble. You see, you stand about six foot Jim Croce, another one of those uh, artists who was just starting to uh, make his ascent to stardom when he died tragically in a plane crash. That's what we're talking about, rock and rollers who died in plane crashes. Uh, the author of the book, Falling Stars, Air Crashes That Filled Rock and Roll Heaven, Rich Everett. Tell us about the crash that took Jim Croce. Jim Croce, the week before his plane crashed, had just recorded a song. It was the last song he ever recorded called I Got a Name. It became a hit for him later. And on September the 20th, 1973, he played his last concert down in northern Louisiana and got on board his airplane and headed down towards Texas for the next stop. I Got a Name was one of the last songs he played in concert that night and the last song he had ever recorded. If you remember, Jim Croce became much more famous after he died than before he died. He only had three hits out at the time of his death, had many more later on. He took off in the airplane in the darkness. The song that he had just finished recording, I Got a Name, the opening line of the song was, like the pine trees lining a winding road, I've got a name. In the darkness on takeoff, his pilot accidentally flew the airplane into a stand of trees lining a winding road, and the subsequent publicity made him a national name. Doesn't that make no you go, kidding. ooh, yeah. really? Again, pilot air, because uh, urban legend says that uh, not only was Jim Croce traveling on that plane, but uh, they were also carrying uh, some pretty big bales of marijuana. No, 
Oh, no. Okay. <laughs> no, there were no sales of marijuana. Uh, That's one of those urban legends uh, that kind of crops up. No, that airplane crash, there are divergent beliefs as to why that plane crashed. There is some indication that their pilot, and I, I write about this in Falling Stars, Air Crashes to Field Rock and Roll Heaven, the pathologist who did the examination of the pilot found a tremendous amount of heart disease in the pilot and said that it was his opinion that the possibility of the of the pilot having had a heart attack could not be dismissed. Now certainly, if you're flying an airplane and you, you kill over from a heart attack and fall over on the yoke of the airplane, that's going to push the nose down into the trees. And so at least one of the people that investigated it, the pathologist, believes that that could have been the reason. But uh, who uh, in those days and who today books the flights for these recording artists? Do they do it themselves or their agents? Why, do, why, why does it seem as though uh, many of these had such inexperienced pilots flying their planes? Well, I tell you, there's, there's no better authority on that than Don McLean, and we, we, who wrote American Pie about the Buddy Holly crash. Yeah. And he and Jim Croce were friends at Villanova. He offers the best explanation, and we quote him in the book. He said, you know, when you're a, a rock and roll star or a country music star or a folk singing star, when you finally get that hit record out after years of struggling, he says you cannot imagine the demands that are on your time. And you have to be, as he put it, everywhere all at once. And to get everywhere all at once, you can't, you can't rely on scheduling your trips with commercial airlines. So you charter airplanes. In the case of all of the people that I write about in Falling Stars, all of these crashes were involved, except for John Denver's, they were all involved with their work, getting to a concert, coming home from a concert. Leonard Skinner, they knew their airplane had a bad motor. They knew it was so bad, they had already contacted a mechanic to meet them when they landed, before they took off. But they had to get to the next concert, they felt like. So rather than having the plane fixed while it was on the ground, they thought, well, we'll try to push it and get to the concert and have it fixed at the concert tonight after we arrive, and they didn't make it. On your website, you even have uh, an excerpt from Artemis Pyle, uh, one of the people who survived that crash, right? That's right. Artemis was very helpful to me in writing the chapter uh, about Leonard Skinner, simply because not only was he a band member and a survivor of the crash, but he is also a pilot and had flown that airplane and, just by coincidence, was in the cockpit talking to the pilots when both of the motors went out on that plane simultaneously. Hmm. So he was able to tell me from a pilot's perspective what had happened inside the cockpit. And Artemis said when the motors went out, of course it becomes a, just a horrifying silence all of a sudden. And he said he felt the hand of destiny on his shoulder at that moment because both his father and father-in-law had died in airplane crashes. If he was up front with the pilots, how did he survive the crash? What, what happened when he knew he was going down? The co-pilot turned to him. He said you could see the terror in the co-pilot's eyes. And the co-pilot said to him, Artemis, if you want to survive, you better go in the back and buckle up. And the co-pilot was right. Everybody in the front of the plane was killed on impact. Is that what uh, determined who died and who didn't? Because there were several members of the band that did survive that crash. A number of people did survive that crash, thanks in large measure uh, to the fact that they had actually run out of fuel. So all the people that died, died by the impact forces and not an explosion. Uh, when you kind of study up on airplane crashes, you realize that there are two things that kill you. The impact, and if that doesn't get you, the, the explosion will. 
because the normally the fuel tanks rupture and the fuel mist into the air, and once it's ignited, you get a great big fireball. But they had no fireball because they had run out of gas. That's literally why they crashed. And everybody that was killed was in the front of the plane. All of the seats and tables broke loose and went forward and literally crushed the people that were in the front of the plane. Uh, so that would be Ronnie Van Zant, uh, Steve Gaines, and Casey Gaines? Cassie Gaines, Cassie Steve Gaines. Gaines' sister, their backup singer, and both pilots were killed, along with uh, the, the band's manager. Uh, now, there's a very, very odd set of circumstances uh, that came up with the Leonard Skinner crash. Once again, just one of those weird stories that makes you go, ooh, really? Ed King was one of the original guitar players with Leonard Skinner. Remember, they had three guitar players. They right. called them the Guitar Army. Mm -hmm. Ed King was one of the founding guitar players, but he was not on the tour. He had retired shortly before the tour, and they had hired Steve Gaines to take his place. Steve Gaines goes, joins the band in place of Ed King, plays Ed King solos in the concert, sits in Ed King's seat on the airplane. Steve Gaines dies. Ed King lives. Ed King began thinking about this later, and he just... He kind of felt a kinship with Steve Gaines. So he decided to go to Steve Gaines' grave later and privately pay his own respects. After all, this was the man that took his place on the plane and died. He said he got to Steve Gaines' grave, looked down at the guy that took his place on the plane, and was astonished to see they had exactly the same birth day, month, and year. We're born at almost the same moment. Uh, we're, we're talking with Rich Effort. Uh, he is the author of Falling Stars, Air Crashes That Filled Rock and Roll Heaven. And ironically enough, we talk about uh, uh, some of the freakiness involved with these crashes. But the album that was out on the shelves uh, that Skinner had just put out was Street Survivors, which had the members on the cover all engulfed in flames. That's right. And the record company pulled that album cover immediately upon hearing about the crash and reissued it uh, without the, uh, the flames on it. Neil Young heard about the Leonard Skinner crash. You'll, you'll recall that Leonard Skinner had written the song Southern Man uh, as a, a scathing look at Neil Young, and in fact said that Southern Man don't need him around anyhow. Remember yeah. that? Neil Young heard about the Leonard Skinner crash in the middle of one of his own concerts that night, stopped the concert, and stunned the audience by launching into his own impromptu rendition of Sweet Home, Alabama. He's got all the stories. It gives you chills. The name of the book is Falling Stars, Air Crashes That Filled Rock and Roll Heaven. Rich Ebert is the guest and the author, Crash That Took Ricky Nelson's Life. They never determined why the fire started. There was a fire on board his airplane. Once they got up to altitude, it was the last day of the year of 1985. They were flying over Texas. It was very cold, and the plane caught fire. It was burning so furiously as they were trying to land it that the magnesium in the airframe the metal was literally melting and dripping off the airplane and setting the woods on fire under it as it came down. The NTSB stopped just short of naming the cause of the fire, but I can tell you they spent a great deal of time focusing on a gasoline heater that they had on board the airplane. Now, for the life of me as a pilot, I can't imagine why you want gasoline combustion on an airplane anywhere outside the motor, but this particular airplane had a gasoline heater on board. It used the same fuel that was going into the motors to run them. And it kept tripping on and off. There's a switch on the, the panel up where the pilots can turn it on and off. And it kept tripping off every time they would turn it on. 
And finally, the co-pilot became so unnerved by this gasoline heater tripping off that he told the pilot, I'm not turning the thing back on again. It's scaring me to death. The pilot goes back to talk to Ricky Nelson, tells him that they can't have heat. He comes back into the cockpit and says, Ricky wants heat. Ricky's going to have heat. And he flips the switch again, and literally seconds later, the entire airplane is engulfed in flames. Before we're out of time, I want to talk about Otis Redding, the crash that took Otis Redding's life. Otis Redding's airplane crashed into a lake coming in on short final as they approached Madison, Wisconsin at the airport there. They were so close to the runway when the plane crashed, in fact, that the air traffic controllers in the tower thought when they saw the blip go off the radar, they thought the plane had actually crashed at the end of the runway, and that's where they scrambled all of the crash trucks to. Turns out the plane had actually gone into Lake Monona, just short of the runway, uh, and hit the water, cartwheeled in, cracked open, threw all of the band members, including Otis Redding, out into the water. And it may surprise people to learn that Otis Redding did not die in the plane crash. Otis Redding and most of the band members survived the crash, but it took so long to get boats out to pick them up, all but one of them drowned while waiting to be rescued. There was one survivor, a trumpet player named Ben Cauley, 20 years old, and he actually is the one who, who can tell the entire story. And he was asleep on board the airplane when it started to spin in. For some reason, he says he still can't explain it, but when he was asleep and startled, woke up, and for some reason unbuckled his seatbelt, and he said he remembered grabbing something. Well, it turns out what he had grabbed was the chair in front of him, and it broke loose, and it flung him out into the water, and he held onto the chair for dear life. And that's why he was able to survive, because he had a flotation device. Ironically, all the others drowned, but Ben Cauley, who survived, was the only non-swimmer in the bunch. Uh, and you know, at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and Museum in Cleveland, they have a piece of that uh, ill-fated plane that went down. Right. And I hate to say this, but there's a rather grisly underworld trade in artifacts from rock and roll airplane crashes, particularly the Patsy Cline crash. That crash site was not secured very quickly, and a lot of people got to it and apparently got bits of that airplane and uh, will be more than happy to sell you bits of her airplane for the right price. Tell us about the uh, crash that killed Patsy Cline and Cowboy Copas. Patsy Cline's crash, once again, it was a pilot flying into weather conditions that he should never have been flying into. Uh, the pilot of that airplane was her manager and sometimes guitar player, and some people say they were even closer than that. And he was flying a small four-seat airplane, single engine. They were coming home from Kansas City and were trying to get back up to Nashville. The weather was just dreadful. They had already delayed the flight for one day and were striking out the second day and made it about 90 miles from home. And there was a terrible storm between them and Nashville. A number of people on the ground warned the pilot not to fly into that storm. And... He decided he could make it anyway. They struck out uh, in the air, the plane about 40 pounds over its maximum weight limit. So the plane was too heavy when they took off, which makes it hard to handle to begin with. And then he flew into one of the worst storms any pilot would ever want to fly into, lost control of the airplane. And it, it was just after dark uh, in a terrible storm and uh, literally lost control of the airplane and flew it right into the, uh, into the woods. 
Rich Everett is the author. The book is Falling Stars, Air Crashes that Filled Rock and Roll Heaven. Uh, there are more stories, and the stories he's told so far to go into much greater detail. Where can they get the book? Get it off of barnesandnoble.com or amazon.com if you like. Well, that'll be the day when you say goodbye. Yes, that'll be the day when you make me cry. You say you're going to leave. You know it's a lie, cause that'll be the day. This podcast is the live mic with Mike Lomont on the Social Voice Project. If you like what you heard, make sure you like, rate, and review on your favorite podcast app. You are listening to a production of the Social Voice Podcast Network.